Radiation, the Birth of Christ, and the War on Christmas. All that and more on this week's episode of Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Welcome to Ask Science Mike, the weekly podcast where I answer your questions about science, faith, and life. I had several questions about Christmas this week, so I thought it'd be fun to do kind of a Christmas-themed show this week, and let's do that next week, too. So if you've got Christmas questions, send them in uh, via the ways I talk about at the end of the show. But for now, let's get it started. Hi, Science Mike. This is Alice in Bloomington, Indiana, and I was just wondering, what type of motorcycle do you drive, and are you okay? For someone who spent years in advertising and public relations, I'm really bad at communicating to the public sometimes, uh, especially when it comes to this audience, this community we've built. Since I'm working so hard at creating a safe space and encouraging authentic communication, I intentionally subvert or don't use a lot of the techniques people use to build platforms and build personas. I try as much as possible to just be myself on the podcast at speaking events, even if that means it's a little less polished, a little less well executed, a little less slick. What I'm trying to do is genuinely relate to people. Uh, And when I had the motorcycle accident and bonked my head, you know, that was kind of a worst case scenario for my approach because I just gave a stream of information as it happened, sometimes without a lot of context. And that generated a lot of questions and concerns about my condition and how I'm doing. So I thought since a question came into the show, it might be good to give a concussion update. Uh, the good news is I'm doing really well. For those of you who don't know, I fell off my motorcycle. Um, a couple of months ago, I was wearing a helmet, but I had a, a rebound concussions. Uh, you know, my brain hit my skull and then bounced and hit the other side of my skull. And I stretched my brain stem in the process. And uh, I had a few weeks where I wasn't quite with it. I had trouble reading, writing, speaking, focusing, remembering. All the core functions of consciousness in the brain were pretty impaired for me. But things are pretty much back to normal. Uh, I feel good. My memory's back. My reading's good. I do have some post-concussion syndrome uh, symptoms. I still can get car sick pretty easily. And I also can have anxiety attacks. I mean, if I'm in crowded rooms with a lot of different people talking or really loud music, uh, and that's not emotionally related as much as a side effect of my stretched brainstem. Now, those are symptoms that could be with me for a while, so I'm just learning to kind of roll with them. It hasn't been too big a deal so far, and I don't see it being any big thing. I do want to say thank you to everyone who has extended their support or asked how I was doing. Uh, I appreciate being in your thoughts and, yes, in your prayers, too. Now, uh, my motorcycle is a Honda NC700X, which I love. It's in the shop right now, getting turned back into a proper motorcycle. But unfortunately, when that repair is done, I am going to sell it since my livelihood comes from writing and speaking uh, and the risk of ongoing loss of function or ongoing symptoms is higher with uh, subsequent concussions. 
I'm not going to run the risk of falling off the bike again. So I am now one of those people who was a former motorcyclist, which is terribly sad (laughs) uh, because I literally can't walk across a parking lot without noticing every single motorcycle and checking it out. But hey, that's the brakes. I'm a writer and author and more importantly, a husband and a father. And I just don't have the skills to ride a motorcycle. (laughs) I'm a pretty clumsy guy. So I'm going to leave that to uh, the more agile among us. And uh, otherwise, doing well. Thanks for asking. Hi, Science Mike. I have a science question for you. My wife works in gamma knife radiation oncology, which is a type of radiation care for people with brain cancer. Um, These people are undergoing um, intense amounts of focused radiation in their brain um, inside a room that's lined with lead, uh, and my wife and other care workers are on the other side of that door. Um, The therapy takes many hours, uh, and my wife decided it would be more pleasant for the patient if they were able to listen to some music during this treatment. So she got a Bluetooth speaker and put it in the room and is able to connect it to her phone and play soothing music through that speaker. My question is actually about my wife's safety because, um, you know, being exposed to radiation on a regular basis is dangerous. And so Why is it that the Bluetooth signal is able to get through these gigantic lead doors, but the radiation is not? Thank you so much for what you do. I've gotten a lot of questions about radiation, none quite as well-worded as that one, but a lot have come into the show, and I've also gotten a lot of questions in the radiation vein about cell phones, as typified by this question by Greg Best Music on Twitter, who said, are cell phones actually dangerous to our bodies because of radiation? And use the Ask Science Mike hashtag. Um, So let's talk a little bit about electromagnetic radiation and how that works. And the first thing we want to think about is the concept of transparent, translucent, and opaque. I think everyone understands what those mean. A wall, for example, we would consider opaque. A window, we would consider transparent, although if the glass is thick enough, it's actually translucent. And maybe a glass of water we would consider translucent or a gem or something that's not perfectly clear or is less clear. Uh, What you don't realize when you think about transparent, translucent, and opaque, you're speaking in the context of visible light. But those concepts work for any electromagnetic radiation, not just visible light. Now, the electromagnetic radiation is a particular type of wave that goes from radio waves to microwaves, to visible light, to ultraviolet light, to x-rays, to gamma rays. It's this spectrum of a similar type of energy, energy wave, uh, but whose frequency is different, whose length of a wave is smaller as you get higher up into the spectrum. And depending on what part of the spectrum you're talking about, different things become transparent or translucent or opaque. So your car windows, for example, are transparent to visible light, but they're opaque to ultraviolet light. If you could see ultraviolet light, looking at a window would be like looking at a wall if you couldn't also see visible light. On the other hand, uh, the walls of your house are pretty much transparent to radio waves. So if you could see with radio waves, the walls of a house would, would look clear. You'd be able to see right through them. The problem is with radio waves, you should be able to see through most things, (laughs) so you wouldn't see a lot. But here's why. 
when you look at a material or a structure made of materials, it's made of atoms and molecules. The thickness of the overall material and the arrangement of atoms and molecules in the materials that make the structure determine how transparent or opaque a given surface will be to different electromagnetic waves. Basically, your very high wavelength or very short wavelength radiation like gamma rays, there's a lot of atoms that are about the same size as a gamma wave. And that means it's easier for those atoms to absorb gamma rays versus, say, radio waves. So in general, the shorter the wave, the easier and more likely something is to be absorbed, the more things are going to appear opaque to it. Now, that said, gamma rays can pass relatively easy into human tissues, which is why gamma knife radiation works. But it's not a, a simple function of just of atoms. It's also the thickness of the material. You're playing a statistics game anytime you talk about photons. So let's think about this in terms of your question. When you close the door to the lab, no light passes through it, right? So gamma rays don't either. The door, those lab doors, are opaque to both visible light and to gamma rays, but radio waves can pass right through it. Now, 2.4 gigahertz uh, waves and uh, 5 gigahertz waves as well are relatively small radio waves, and so they don't pass as readily through surfaces and through human construction as well as like FM waves, which are much longer waves with a meter-long, a multimeter-long waves. But that door's doing its job. It's effectively blocking all the gamma rays. Uh, it's just translucent or, or almost transparent to 2.4 gigahertz radio waves. Now, here's the thing. That's not what determines if radiation is harmful, whether you're transparent or opaque to it. What makes radiation harmful to humans, or at least electromagnetic radiation, is if the radiation is ionizing, meaning it has the ability to knock subatomic particles out of our atomic nuclei and therefore damage DNA. Both gamma rays and x-rays are ionizing, which is why people who work with gamma rays and x-rays have to take precautions to manage their dosage, the amount of radiation they receive over their lifetime or in a given period of time. But radio waves and visible light are non-ionizing. That's why we don't worry about them too much. You can walk as long as you get too close to a radio tower, you're fine. Um, visible light, the you know, you're getting hit with radiation, quote unquote, every time you turn on a light bulb, but you don't worry about it because visible light's non-ionizing. Now, non-ionizing radiation does affect us. If you absorb, if the, the matter in your body is of the right construction to absorb a given EM wave, it will affect you by heating you up a little bit. So light can kill you. Infrared light can kill you. If you get too hot and catch fire, theoretically a radio wave of high enough amplitude, I suppose, could also heat you up to a point that it was dangerous. But the cutoff for ionizing radiation in humans is in the ultraviolet spectrum. So some UV light is non-ionizing, UVA, for example, but UVB and UVC, which are higher frequency UV light, are ionizing. Now, luckily, UVC is stopped by the ozone layer, um, but UVB is not, and that's why the sun increases your risk for skin cancer. Some of those waves get far enough into your body, statistically, that sometimes they strike an atomic nuclei and there's a little bit of radiation. Now, you're surrounded by radiation all the time, 
bananas are radioactive. Some of the potassium in your body is radioactive. Um, and we're playing a statistics game. The more ionizing radiation you're exposed to, the greater your likelihood of cancer. And of course, you have risk factors included in there. For example, I'm a ginger. We're like a thousand times more likely to get cancer from the same amount of sun exposure as darker skinned people. Now, what about cell phone radiation? Well, cell phones, Wi-Fi, and other similar forms of radiation are not ionizing and therefore appear to be perfectly safe. A couple of studies have shown that since cell phones are held close to the head, they do appear to create enough heat that they can cause increased glucose metabolism on the side of the brain closest to the phone. We don't know if that's a risk or not, um, but so far there has been no clear linkage between non-ionizing radiation and cancer, and certainly not between cell phones and cancer. They appear to be safe at this time. Of course, if you want to minimize your exposure there's something called the inverse square law. The further away a source of any radiation is from you, the less radiation you're dosed with. So, you know, keeping your phone on your desk instead of your pocket, using speaker phones, that kind of thing could lessen your radiation, but it, it shouldn't matter. Um, everything I've read, every expert I've talked to says cell phone radiation, like Wi-Fi and radio waves, are nothing to worry about. Uh, and I would say if you're a person that worries about cell phone radiation, I hope you're wearing sunscreen every time you go outside because the linkage between UV radiation and skin cancer is clearly defined and yet people don't seem to worry about it nearly as much. Our next question comes from Tate Randall, who used the Ask Science Mike hashtag on Twitter, and he asked, when was Jesus actually born? It's a question a lot of people come up with at the holidays. For people like me who grew up in the evangelical tradition, we were kind of taught that December 25th was literally the birthday to Christ. And as I got older and examined more, I realized that some pieces of the narrative of Christmas I was taught at church didn't reflect the Bible all that well. For example, nativity scenes always had wise men in them, but in the Bible story, the wise men came Years later, and so much of what we talk about at Christmas is tied to traditions, as it should be, because Christmas itself is more grounded in tradition than any verifiable historical fact. Here's what I mean. First of all, no one knows when Jesus was born. Absolutely no one. I haven't seen any consensus among scholars. I haven't even seen you know, a consensus among seminarians or, or religious scholars. We know that December 25th was established by the Roman church, and that was probably to coincide with some pagan winter solstice festivals, as well as a, a festival in Rome honoring Saturn. Um, and that was a way to ease Romans into Christianity after Constantine's conversion. So that's kind of a, a co-opting of festivals that existed and making them about Jesus. And you can imagine somewhat ironically that uh, <laughs> a Roman could have said to a Christian, hey, remember, Saturn is the reason for the season. Because <laughs> at one point, we were the cultural invader, right? Our Christians were. Now, teasing out a date is tough. Some scholars looking at biblical evidence would say Christ was born in the spring, since the Bible speaks of shepherds who are watching over their flocks by night, that famous line. And winter would have been too cold for that kind of activity. By that time, they would have you know, moved into warmer dwellings, caves, structures, something now, some astronomers have tried to tie the date 
to astronomical events based on the story of the Star of Bethlehem. So they've looked at dates based on, for example, Chinese observations of comets because we have astronomical records from the from the Chinese culture at that time in history, or they've looked at planetary conjunctions, which we can calculate today what those dates would have been. Uh, but that gives you a several year spread, you know, plus or minus a few years around zero AD or one AD. And uh, so other historians look at the timeline of Herod's life, since Herod is an actual verifiable historical figure. And the understood timeline of Herod would make you think that Jesus was born closer to 4 AD, maybe 3 AD. Um, But there's some doubt by scholars, actually a lot of doubt by secular scholars, about the accounts that Herod ever called for the slaughter of male infants because there aren't any historical records that corroborate that, despite the fact that we do have historical records for the reign of Herod and some of the proclamations that he made. To be honest, and since our show is pretty diverse, I know there's atheists listening, there's agnostics listening, very progressive Christians, some conservative Christians, evangelicals, mainline, Catholic. I mean, there's a lot of folks out there. Uh, So I hope this doesn't blow anybody's mind. But most uh, secular scholars would say that the earliest written gospels didn't discuss the birth of Christ in any detail that those were details added in later writings and the later Gospels to make Christ's story more convincing to the audiences they were targeted to. So some of the Gospels were primarily written for Roman or pagan or Gentile audiences. Some were written for primarily Jewish audiences, and they tend to emphasize details uh, which established Christ's divinity to those groups. Now, this isn't a unique problem to Jesus. There's a lot of historical figures ancient historical figures where we have trouble nailing down the precise dates of their birth uh, or their death or, or even events in their life because we haven't always kept history the way we keep it now. History was a much more narrative uh, event for a long time. I mean, honestly, the emergence of Greco-Roman civilization uh, in the West is when we start seeing some greater discipline in terms of timekeeping. But don't forget, we've had several calendar changes in history as well. And so we're converting different calendars. Pretty complex stuff. Nobody thought of AD or CE in that era, right? Those are terms that came a lot later. Uh, now, some people hear this and it calls into question the value of the Christmas story at all. So a couple of things I would say. One, there's reasonable consensus among historians that Jesus was a real person. That's not that controversial an idea. And the fact that we can't precisely pinpoint the date or circumstances of Christ's birth don't make us less confident that there was a person named Jesus around that time in history who started a significant religious movement. Okay, I used to be a mythicist. I thought Jesus didn't exist. I've talked to some historians, some secular historians, and they've told me and offered me reasons why um, mythicism is not a a widely held belief among secular historians. It just isn't. Now, the idea that parts of the Christmas story were narrative ways to explain the importance of Jesus and might not be firmly grounded in fact Uh, or at least historical or historically verifiable fact, doesn't freak me out at all because, again, I understand the Bible to be a collection of books written by men about God. 
a collection of books, not one book, a bunch of different books written by a bunch of different people assembled by the church so that we would understand this unfolding story of God and mankind, humankind, really. So I don't read the Gospels to expect and like expect to find flawless historical record any more than you know I expect to read Genesis and find flawless uh, scientific accuracy in physics or cosmology. It's just not how people wrote in those days or in that culture or what their understanding was. I read the Gospels to understand how people in a specific time in history responded to the story of Christ. I read it to see how people, some of whom never met Jesus, tried to understand what it meant to be a part of the way, as Christianity was called at first. That's what I'm looking for in the gospel. So I don't have any problem celebrating Advent and Christmas in December. Just no problem at all, because this is a tradition of people who follow Christ, a way of honoring the birth of this figure who we all follow. That doesn't mean I'm uninterested in the historical details. I actually nerd out about it quite a bit, but it's not an essential component of my Christian faith and practice. It's not where the gospel comes to life for me. At this time of the year, I'm doing a lot of Advent prayer and Advent meditation. And those meditations, as you can hear on our release, O Light with the Liturgists, include the setting and context of the gospel stories. But I'm not concerning myself with the degree of historical fact. Instead, I'm asking, what was this author trying to tell that audience? And what does it mean for me? Hi, Mike. It's Marissa. I was hoping you might address a few things that have been on my mind lately during the Christmas season. So like you and a lot of your listeners, my faith has changed recently, and part of this has involved me developing an even stronger sense of empathy toward people of different faith or no faith or others who maybe are somewhere in between. But when it comes to the holidays, Christians often say things like, remember the reason, or they talk about the war on Christmas, which kind of gets under my skin now. Sometimes it really seems to me like Christians in the United States take it for granted that they're a majority segment of the population with a lot of influence. Even where I live, there's actually a Skywriter plane that sometimes writes Christian messages in the sky, and I can't imagine the kind of uproar there would be if a Muslim did something like that. So what I'm getting at is that Christians here enjoy some really very real privileges and freedoms that others don't. But they sometimes seem to have what I like to call a persecution complex, like the whole controversy about Merry Christmas versus Happy Holidays. It just seems kind of petty to me. I used to identify with those people, but now I find myself empathizing more with the non-Christians or people who describe themselves as non-religious or maybe even recovering from religion when they come across these overt religious displays or religious music in public places during the holidays or those store owner signs putting out messages about the war on Christmas. So I get how people can maybe be annoyed with the commercialization of the holidays, but I also think it's a little harsh the way some Christians kind of want to monopolize this season of giving hope, joy, new birth, and new beginnings. And of course, as I'm sure you know, there are plenty of people in the online community that will also go into how all kinds of cultures and historical influences, not just Christian ones, have created the holiday we call Christmas today. So that kind of brings me to a little bit of a side question on how to deal with Christian Christmas messages or theology that 
may bring some of us some anxiety who came from a more literalistic black and white upbringing. Things like the talk of escaping Satan's power when we were gone astray, or the Savior who came to save Christians and only Christians from impending wrath and our own wretchedness, or apologetics on why Isaiah's prophecies are referring to Christ the Messiah and not completely taken out of context. Those types of things tend to take me down a deep, dark rabbit hole on a bad day, which leads to obsessing, and it's hard to stay away from those comments from people on all possible sides on pretty much any given topic who think they have it right. I also find it tough not to fall back into some of those deep-rooted ideologies from my youth that I don't agree with anymore, and they still cause these occasional pangs of cognitive dissonance. So I was wondering if you have any advice on how you deal with that kind of thing. And then my first question, your thoughts on Christmas, being a time of joy, peace, forgiveness for everyone, including non-Christians. There's been a change in how humans identify people who belong in their group. And the earliest human cultures and human groupings that existed before human culture, it was based primarily on blood, your family relationships, your integration into a given tribe is who you determine who you were with and who you were against. That's what we understand through anthropology. Later, there was a a change, a progression, when that moved to an affinity, a shared value based on belief. If we believe the same things, we're a group together. That leads to things like not only Christianity, but democracy. National identities can put one foot in either camp between blood and belief. So you once had an affinity that was based on belief, on agreement, that you shared values in a single story. But now you've moved beyond that. And it seems like your focus now on what so many people are, your shared affinity is based on behavior. For example, if someone respects the rights of others, it doesn't matter what they believe. If someone doesn't take actions that oppress others or harm them, then you know you value them as part of community. So we've had this progression from blood to belief to behavior. By the way, uh, if this sounds familiar, I stole those three words from Rob Bell. I uh, just want to give a shout out to Rob there. Uh, so this has changed now, but let's let's stop for a second. You and I both were belief people, and if you're like me, it wasn't that long ago, a couple of years. And if you kind of step back and look in that frame, if a tribe is based on belief, if social cohesion comes from affinity of shared belief, shared values instead of shared actions, then Happy Holidays actually is a war on Christmas. It's introducing another story. And if your affinity is the right thing as everyone learns to have the same story, that actually is a threat. Uh, The growth of non-religious and secular perspectives to say nothing of other religions in America does threaten a one-story society. And in previous eras of American history, we've been able to be insular enough that multiple one-story societies could exist, one of which, you know, white America was very dominant, uh, and the other stories were kind of forcefully kept out of that narrative, but they had their own stories. Today, the internet has blown that up, in some ways undermined the institutional powers associated with one-story systems. Uh, Now, here's the thing. I am remarkably patient with people who believed things that I used to believe 
because I used to believe them. I understand how they hold that position. I understand how you can feel threatened by the word happy holidays. At one point in my life, I was too. I understand how different cultures can be threatening. I've always been uh, pretty excited by or interested in other cultures, but I also was very uncomfortable if they questioned Christian doctrine, belief, and practice. I was interested primarily in figuring out how to get them saved. Like, you know, I was reading uh, Russell Moore's defense of Muslims against what Donald Trump was saying, but Russell Moore said that the reason he wanted to defend Muslims and their right to enter America was so that he could proselytize them, so that he could convince them that his faith was the genuine one. Um, And a lot of people were outraged. I understand that outrage, but I also understand where Russell Moore's coming from. I used to think that way. So I'm careful that I never let myself feel superior or smarter or more enlightened than someone else because I'm not. My life has unfolded in such a way that my perspectives have changed. But that wasn't just like I didn't pull my mind up with my own strength and and find a new place. I was exposed to new information and new circumstances. And I was had enough social support that I could look at life from a different perspective. Some people, when they encounter those situations, new ideas and new experiences, they don't have the social support to evaluate a different way of thinking. They lose what support they have. That's a big deal for humans and for human brains. So I'll start by saying, clearly the right thing is a multicultural Christmas. Clearly there is a secular holiday Christmas. There's multiple Christian Christmas experiences. I'm new to Methodism in the mainline church, so I was learning about Advent for the first time. That was never a huge part of my Baptist upbringing. There was an Advent wreath, but it was just this kind of pointer part of Christmas. And now I understand these these distinct church seasons of Advent and Christmas. That's new and mind-blowing for me. I have to understand some people are where I was, and they're going to be. So how do we deal with that? We offer people grace. And when we can, we engage people in safe, supportive conversations. I don't argue with people about the war on Christmas. If they ask me about it, I'll tell them why I don't think it's a threat. And But I try to avoid getting argumentative. You know, if people are angry, their amygdala is activated, and they're not reasonable anymore. They're just defending a position. They're just trying to win. So if I can't have a peaceful conversation, I'm out. I say, great, believe what you're going to believe. Now, in terms of the old ideas kind of bringing up anxieties, bringing up uh, a tendency to fall back into old ways of thinking, things like Satan's power or, or, or prophecy, all those things, I try to be grateful for the role those ideas played in making me who I am now. So I carefully consider each one and think, how did that lead me to where I am today? Could it help lead someone else to a better place, even if in the, in the time it's damaging? I also recognize that their identity of accepting Jesus as being part of the tribe is more inclusive than what came before it in its own way that represents social and societal progress. There is neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free. That was an incredibly progressive idea in the day. And that even though my identity is more inclusive now, I still recognize the value in other faith traditions, even ones that are less inclusive. I actually do scientific research and understand that there are neurocognitive benefits even to fundamentalism. And most importantly, I look at Viktor Frankl's work in Man's Search for Meaning 
and I look at a redemptive perspective on those things in my past that I have trouble with now and figure out how they were used for good and how others could use them for good. So I love it when people tell me Merry Christmas. (laughs) I really do. I also love it when people say Happy Holidays or Happy Hanukkah. Anytime people want to celebrate life and living and love, I'm in all the way. But I also understand that some people are deeply saddened in this time and that my joy over the season serves to exacerbate those feelings of rejection, of loss. So whether someone is a Merry Christmas, a Happy Holidays, a Happy Hanukkah, or sad in the season, I meet them where they are. I listen. I reflect on what they say so that I can learn from their perspective and grow from the time I spend with them. And in all those situations, I try to treat people with grace, with love, and respect. Because I think that might be a path towards peace on earth and goodwill toward men. That does it for another episode of Ask Science Mike. Um, As I mentioned at the top of the show, it's kind of fun to do Christmas questions. So if you've got Christmas questions, use the hashtag Ask Science Mike this week. And I'll do a show of nothing but Christmas questions, assuming we get them. For you all who are patrons, I'll put a post on the patron page. (laughs) That's funny alliteration, post on the patron page. Uh, Asking for your Christmas questions. I'm going to give patrons first shot at the Christmas show. It's only fair you make the show possible. So if you'd like to be a part of hosting these open, honest conversations about science and faith, we'd love to have you. Just go to AskScienceMike.com. And click on the Patreon link, and you can donate to the show a dollar a month, $2 a month, $5 a month. It means a lot to me if you would. Of course, if you're tight on money, I understand in Christmas many people are. You can always cancel or change your pledge. A few people have knocked their pledges down this month, I've noticed, and I get it. Uh, And I appreciate that you would even continue to give it all. If you literally can't spare a dollar, go to iTunes and rate the show. Uh, That's one of the best things you can do to help me find new listeners and grow the show and uh, help people be a part of this conversation. I want to say thanks this week to Bradley Brennan, who wrote our show notes, of course, to Greg Nordeen, the amazing Canadian who does our production, and my friend Jeb Botifer, who wrote the theme song. Uh, Mad props to all of them for making the show possible and for you for listening and for sending in such good questions. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week. Ah!